Hello and welcome back to online education across the Atlantic. I'm here as always with Glenda Morgan and Neil Mosley. It's great to have you all here. So today uh, we're going to be talking, trying to look at innovation. Is anything happening in the ed tech space? What interesting or we seeing? And if not, why not? So that's going to be our main topic today. But ahead of time, uh, there, as always, uh, over the past two years, quite a bit of ed tech news that we should round up and and see what's actually happening. So we'll start out with uh, there was a report, the Office for Students, uh, around two universities in particular, Neil, that's probably worth mentioning. Can you sort of highlight for our listeners what's happening there? And I'm trying to avoid having to pronounce correctly, Buckinghamshire. Yeah, that's a that's a tricky one, isn't it? That's a tricky one. The, it is the, for me. The, sh- the shires, yeah. Um, so yeah, basically, this is a report from the Office for Students, which you know, for uh, American listeners, they're the kind of regulator of universities over here in the UK. So they basically announced uh, last year that they were going to do some assessments of I think eight uh, universities and colleges. And it was basically to um, investigate concerns around the quality of business and management courses. And so this is a report that's kind of on the back of some of those assessments. And so the University of Wolverhampton, Buckinghamshire New University. And so Buckinghamshire New University, (laughs) it's catching, it's catching, you got me, Um, was the one that kind of had the worst rap sheet, essentially. And I guess things that jumped out kind of relevant to the sort of things that we talk about, I suppose, are things like inconsistent use of the VLE. I mean, actually, when you read the report um, around the kind of university, it's pretty depressing reading, to be honest, um, around resources not being up to date, inconsistent delivery, delivery that's just really jarring in respect to the the types of students and non-traditional types of students that they have with full-time responsibilities, there's a whole bunch of different things. And actually, in a weird way, the kind of inconsistency of resources on the VLE, which, you know, one might say is actually a common, more common occurrence, is the least of the things that get flagged up in that report. Well, for all the other readers, not for us. Morgan went straight to that point. <laughs> I know. I know she did. Yeah, she did. Yeah. Um, I mean, I you know, that's the thing that doesn't massively surprise me. And to a certain extent, some of the things that highlighted don't surprise me, like, you know, people using old case studies in business degrees. I've, I've kind of seen that. I remember working with a, a university on a curriculum transformation project and I remember the university essentially kind of pointing to one of their business programs and uh, pointing to one of the courses where, you know, the, the, the content was just so out of date, but they just didn't feel like they could influence the person teaching uh, to make that change. And they were waiting for that person to retire. So, you know, some of those things that kind of came out, uh, I've kind of experienced, but the VLE one, I guess, because of the world that I operate in isn't hugely surprising to me, although it's the one thing that probably is is more of an online education across the Atlantic type story. <laughs> yes, I did jump on that, and to and to his credit, Neil snorted at me across the Atlantic. Oh. <laughs> That's hardly yeah. news. Yeah. Well, did it hit you, by the way, that like compared to in the US with accreditors and our types of reviews that we do, 
that the report was actually much more meaningful than I'm used to and actually looking at educational quality and focusing on student experience. So maybe a positive way is, my goodness, I that, that was a pretty solid report from what I can tell. And I love that it focused on the quality of teaching and student experience. Neil is feeling very sorry for us right now and thinking, oh, oh my goodness, how bad must it be in the United States if they're talking positively about OFS reviews, which are universally panned. I know, <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I, I have to kind of agree with Phil. I mean, I like the report and I like what it covered, but, you know, the OFS is not a much-loved institution in the UK particularly. But, you know, if it's going to flag up things like this then i think i think that's broadly positive and you know i i i thought it was a decent decent report obviously with all of these things there's mitigating factors of kind of institutional context as well and um but on the whole i thought it was a good yeah a good a good report really over here in the us probably to me what i think is the biggest news particularly over the past week is the yet another delay in the fafsa Essentially, and I'm not sure if you're getting that news over in the UK, but it's essentially saying how you apply for federal student financial aid. There's a common form that students use, and that's how you find out not just can you get a loan, but are you eligible for a Pell Grant? Are you eligible for this? And it's really used a lot to make sure that students who are low income or might have opportunities to pay for college that they don't know about, they find it out soon. Normally, that form goes out and the information goes to the schools in the October, November timeframe. Then we're redesigning it in the U.S., not we, but the Department of Education. And the idea is to simplify the process and make it much easier. And then it just kept getting delayed and delayed. And then what had been happening is they started a soft rollout at the end of the year instead of actually rolling it out. And there were a lot of problems with it, but the data from that was gonna get back to schools by the end of January. Well, January, I believe it happened yesterday, maybe it's the 29th or the 30th. So one of the last days of the month, the Department of Ed comes out and says, oh, by the way, that data getting back to schools so that they know who they can apply so that they can help students figure this out, that's going to be in March. And so it's like yet another delay of upwards of two months. And if you read what they're saying, they didn't say everybody will get the data in March. They'll say, they said, we'll start releasing the data in batches in early March. And schools are just shocked right now. It's like, how the heck are we supposed to do this when you're you know, thing that's supposed to simplify is actually holding back data. And the students who are going to be hurt by this are the ones that you seem to care about. And so it's a looming disaster over here. So for me, that was the biggest news uh, is is what's happening with that. And that's going to harm many things. Yeah, people are very, very angry about it. I saw like a tweet from Michael Sorrell from Paul Smith's college that was he was furious about it, and uh, and so he should be. The Inside Higher Ed article's got some pretty fun quotes in there, <laughs> talking about just how bad it is. Uh, so people are, yeah, they are not holding back on how how bad. There was this thing about this center of chaos, that is the way they described it. Oh, and we got the gobsmacked. One of the quotes, 
I am stunned, gobsmacked, really, the president of uh, NACAC, an association for college admissions counseling. And people are just like, I'm getting this constant message. We don't know what to say. We're just stunned. This is so incompetent and so harmful what's going on. So um, there's our positive news over here. And now Congress has uh, has asked for all manner of information from the Department of Education about their contracts, about things like that. So in some ways, there's a little bit of schadenfreude going on here from some of us. Yeah. Because they are wanting a lot of transparency into my $5 purchase of, of some AWS storage if I'm a university. And, and, uh, and now they're having to produce a lot of a lot of that information and, and, and probably struggling to do so. So They've definitely bit off more than they can chew. And they don't seem to care, quite honestly. In, in other words, I don't see the record. There should be a panic on their side. And this was three years in the making, but I think part of what it represents is not just, hey, you're getting hit with transparency, but it's a sign that the Department of Ed is just throwing everything out there on the regulation front. And people have been saying, well, how would they even go through this data they're trying to collect in an organized manner? And this is just sort of proof that they can't even do their job right now. So to me, it's a huge issue. Even particular populations of students that they purportedly purportedly care about. So low-income students, you know, and a lot of the focus has been on their regulation has been supposedly to reduce student indebtedness and things like that. But also they made a, a glitch and undocumented students cannot actually log into the system at the moment. And there's no sign of that getting fixed. So it's supposedly one of the, the groups of students that they're meant to care about more than than any other group and a really you know something that's really important to many of us and and so it's just infuriating i'm gobsmacked too now i'm in a cranky mood for the rest (laughs) so is there a bit of a theme of heavy-handed regulation then and and if so what's what's kind of causing it well there is a theme of heavy-handed regulation and it's ideology is what's driving it there's a view of the department of ad and their allies of we know better what should be done Everybody is suspect as a bad actor, including regular colleges and universities, not just for-profit providers. And, and we do not see the need to consult them. I yes. Mean, people have been working in this field for, for many years. We do not feel the need to consult them about how things are going. But I think in this case, this was a well-intentioned effort to simplify the process and do it, but it was just done incompetently. And so I think you would add to it they're so busy doing so many other things yet they can't do their basic job. Yeah. If that, yeah, that's yeah. my view. Yeah. And, and, and I guess that's kind of pretty telling, isn't it? When you're on one hand being quite heavy handed and uh, I guess kind of reaching out, but you can't do the basics. That's not. But if you are interested in this theme of heavy handed regulation, I've got a good newsletter mm-hmm. to suggest to you um, that has been covering it in some detail <laughs> for the last year. I, you know what? I not a, I went and gifted him a premium subscription on that as well. I'll have to go look to see how many he's reading. I think that's <laughs> in the system. Transparency. I, I have no idea who you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I hope you find that he's read a lot. Yes. 
Uh, so there's a, one other, I mean, there is a lot of news, but one other I want to highlight, and it's sort of a transition, if you will, into our main topic, which is about ed tech innovation, if you will. And the, there was a news release, it was PR from Google about Google Classroom and a lot of new tool additions, including a lot of AI powered tool additions. And let's admit, that's one of the few companies that can actually say, we know what we're talking about, about embedding AI within our tools. But they're really doing, I mean, they continue to keep improving Google Classroom, which is perennially within higher education. It's certainly in outside of Asia, you know, viewed as, ah, it's not really an LMS. But one thing that keeps hitting me is they keep putting new features into Google Classroom and it keeps getting better and better. And ironically, it's sort of under under the radar. I don't think people, people realize how many improvements are going in. So that's, I think, uh, welcome news. I don't know how much it impacts higher education, but it's certainly welcome news. Um, but Morgan, you would really notice that as well. What was your impression of it? Yeah, I, I've been. I, I, I was impressed by that. You know, it, it was like a, I remember one one time you and Michael in the earlier version of the uh, of of the newsletter described a, a Blackboard conference as, as like carpet bombing of 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 uh, new features, and it felt a bit like that. You know, just yeah. boom, boom, boom. There were there were so many I could barely wrap my head around. And there was a time I think around about late twenty twenty two. I was talking to a lot of folks who deeply follow and support Google Classroom. So mostly K twelve folks here in in the US, and they'd been talking about how innovation had really slowed at that point. But um, that seems to have really been turned around um, in the last year or so. You know, because we've had two really big tranches of of improvements so you know i think it's it, it's significant and it'll be interesting to see how folks re- respond to that yeah and it's it's interesting how it is sort of largely disregarded in higher education i think i, I know of one uk uh university who uses google classroom for a very small one um, but it's, yeah, not really on the table. I think it has a strong association with schools over here. And I think I think maybe uh, there's that kind of Google-Microsoft dichotomy and, you know, Microsoft is the one of choice and therefore that feels like that inhibits the even consideration of, of Google really here. But, yeah, I mean, it's one to watch, I guess, but it still feels like it's not really on the minds of higher education as a potential product. Well, right, let's get to an important question. What is it with the UK and Microsoft? Do they just have one of the world's best sales teams over there? I mean, the software, yeah, they've got some interesting things, but it's so hard to use and cumbersome. What's the cause? It, maybe the security is the reason, but why is the UK gone all in on Microsoft? I mean, I'm speaking in general here. Yeah, no, it's a really good it's a really good question, and I think uh, you know probably like as we talked about uh, last week, I think it was around kind of teams and security, like that's one factor. Um, I I think you know there is a sense of uh, you know following one another. I think in UK higher education, and so you know Microsoft had just kind of got to this kind of you know ridiculous position of kind of dominating the kind of sphere and I think because universities see other universities doing something they kind of tend to follow and so I think that that has a has a part to play um 
Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not 100 sure. I mean, those are two factors that kind of spring to to my mind as why is that why that is the case. But yeah, it really dominates in a similar way to things like Turnitin, where there's no real, you know, Turnitin equally dominates kind of UK landscape around that, that kind of tool. But yeah. well, not only does Turnitin dominate in the UK for plagiarism detection, but in the in the US, primarily. Turnitin is known for plagiarism detection, but my experience in the UK is it's much deeper usage, such as providing feedback on assignments and markup tools. And it, there's like a deeper usage that goes well beyond plagiarism over there that you just don't see in the US that much. Yeah, it's certainly not limited to plagiarism kind of um, checker. You know, it's used as a uh, the feedback studio and it uses a digital assessment tool. So it's definitely used more comprehensively. But yeah, it'd be, you know, going back to your original point, I mean, it is strange how how Microsoft has kind of got to that position. But then I think once you get to that position, you know, it's difficult to, to turn back. I mean, I'm not sure that, you know, I, I, I similar to you, I'm, not a huge lover of things like Microsoft Teams, but I'm not sure that there's voices raised loud enough around any deficiencies that you know that would lead universities to seriously consider uh, an alternative for that kind of for that type of thing, really. So understated politeness is the cause for Microsoft's continued dominance. That's what I took out of this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. It's fine. No, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to upset the Apple cart. That would be that would be very yeah. uh, that would be very impolite. So, so with that in mind, let's talk about innovation. And part of the setup for this, uh, Morgan and I had a call with one of our market analyst clients, or. You know, we have an hour, talk to them, they ask us questions, and quite often we're acting as a proxy for the market. Here's what we're seeing, and or they might say, we're seeing this, can you help explain it? And there was just a really interesting question. I, it sounds simple, but I it led to a confusing answer, which is, what innovation are you seeing? What new things in the ed tech space are you seeing that might be taking hold? Not just that a feature exists, but it has real potential. And, you know, our initial answer, you know, hum, uh, well, I, that's hard to know. <laughs> it was a difficult but actually profound question, if you ask me. So that's what we'd like to sort of go into is what are we seeing new? So I guess the field is in educational technology. It's in ed tech. And I guess the other qualifier I would say is something that's not just, oh, what a cool feature. I have no idea if anybody's ever going to use it, but something that in your opinion really has potential to get real adoption and make changes in the environment, help schools out with what they do. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of thought about think, talking about this in three different uh, sections. First one is let's go with the obvious about generative AI in particular, AI, generative AI, but then elsewhere, and then get into, well, then why are we seeing what we're seeing? So let's start off with this. From an AI perspective, are you guys seeing any meaningful features and innovation happening that you think will be around for a while and get meaningful adoption? I am not. So I'm hoping that Neil will <laughs> Neil will jump in here and say yes, there there are all these ones, but I'm I am not. I'm I'm seeing lots of lots of things. So increasingly I'm seeing more and more things around 
efficiency, so about doing things quicker. But in a meaningful way? Not really, no. It's more like floating, you know, proofs of concept or, or, or things like that, you know. like So I've been following marketing a lot as I try to wrap my head around that. And so folks are using it to, you know, craft email campaigns and things like that, but not seeing a lot of really things making a massive difference at the moment. All right, Neil, you're here to save us with a positive message. I know, I know. I wish I could. I wish I could, but I share a similar view to Morgan because it's a question that I get asked and it's a question that I ask um, around kind of AI and kind of what's happening. And it was interesting, I think it was this week, the QAA, Quality Assurance Agency in the UK, kind of published some resources. And I I had a look at the kind of resources that they had on, and they were predominantly around kind of an assessment, which kind of tells you the sort of defensive position that um, UK higher education probably has on that, that side of things. But I guess I tend to think about universities in edtech in the sense of, you know, what, what maybe standalone product would kind of be be becoming an accepted part of the the suite and i don't really see a a particular ai focused product that's going to become in the short term anyway an accepted part of that suite what i the main thing that i see is the kind of ai features that are becoming embedded within the tools that already exist and i think that's the kind of one viable route in which higher education starts to adopt AI tools for um, for for teaching and learning, but I don't see a kind of compelling product that's going to upset the apple cart and suddenly become this kind of key part of what um, what universities ed tech kind of stack looks like. I mean, there's been yeah, I think University of London did a um, had a had a chatbot for their they've got a big distance learning program, so there's there's that that's gone on, although that's not necessarily new, you know, it's been done before um, by people, but it, it is a question that I think gets asked. And I think a lot of people is kind of, you know, doing what I'm doing, which is basically faffing around and not answering the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think you have a good point um, that's worth considering, at least in the near term. And that is that the best route for adoption is going to be within established providers. So features, not new products. And so within, hey, everything comes back to the VLE or LMS. Um, I think that we do have, we saw this and I would highlight, I think Anthology has um, a stronger story where they they did do a little bit of carpet bombing this summer with AI um, information, but they also have are getting some non- trivial adoption. I can't share numbers from what I know, not without permission, but they're getting some non-trivial adoption of their course design AI tool. Um, I think D2L, I don't know their numbers, but I actually think their formative assessment creation tool where you can use, you know, within the flow of course design, you can highlight a section and use an AI tool to help create formative assessment around there. And on the instructor, the most meaningful, Canvas, most meaningful one is their Conmigo, you know, Khan Academy's AI tool, their integration there, not what they're doing, but more their integration. So I definitely see that's the, that's the most near-term route to get some of this into education. The, the vendor I'm the most impressed with, quite honestly, doesn't operate in higher ed. It's PowerSchool. 
I had a pretty good briefing with them looking at a comprehensive suite of tools. And it's important to know they consolidate multiple functional systems into one architecture. They've successfully acquired companies and integrated them is another way of saying it. But the one that really strikes me is a natural language processing way to get analytics reports out of the system. Being able to say, I think part of the thing was, show me all the students in this major that are you know, missing a course or are doing poorly on courses this term. And that sounds simple. It's really a user interface is one way to do it. But I think it's meaningful. It means that you can democratize access to analytics and maybe that will actually accelerate the use of analytics to provide meaningful data to educators. So I can't say it is getting adopted meaningfully, but from my perception of what's out there, it's one of the most interesting approaches I've seen. So I think it's going to be meaningful down the road. Yeah, and I guess I think as well, I mean, maybe I framed it slightly uh, narrowly in that I kind of talked about maybe universities procuring something that they would then use. But actually, you know, the extent to which people are experimenting with, you know, things like ChatGPT and all the array of different products that aren't necessarily pitched as a kind of for education for universities to purchase, like that's harder to harder to glean I suppose maybe we're thinking about it a little bit in terms of you know university procured kind of technologies that then are kind of mainly used by students and I know there are you know there are kind of writing tools and things out there so I think there'll be some scope for that but I I kind of come back to a point I made I think on one of the other podcasts which was HE's kind of disposition I think we even talked about this when we're talking about the different VLEs um approaches and how they'd been quite conservative around their ethical policies and you know very keen to mention that you know this doesn't uh, replace a teacher and things like that so I think that's one of the you know one of the one of the reasons but it would be interesting to know and it probably impossible to know the extent to which academics and uh, instructors are kind of experimenting with the array of tools that are out there that don't you know, that might influence the way that they lesson plan or whatever it might be, or, you know, construct slides, but it's going to be hard to get a barometer of that. But there's plenty of things out there that it can use. I am I am looking forward to, um, just before the ASU GSV conference, there is that sort of demo of some AI kinds of tools. I'm looking forward to maybe finding some individual standalone tools there that may be mm. promising, at least in terms of the future. Yeah. So it seems to me, if you go just post-secondary, the biggest uh, adoption we've seen so far is chat GPT and primarily in the hands of students, as you said. It's not really a procurement, but that is changing how they're doing research, how they're doing responding to writing prompts and stuff like that. It gets portrayed quite often in the terms of cheating and as opposed to thinking through what that means and how you can use this in a constructive way. But I think that's the biggest impact. But unfortunately, the second is more of the, hey, we're big and we're going to think about it vein. So you mentioned ASU GSV. It's not just a conference. It's the ChatGPT, you know, OpenAI partnership with ASU. And that's some of our big news right now. Hey, these two you know, companies or organizations known for innovation, they're going to start looking at this. 
likewise, uh, Southern New Hampshire and Paul LeBlanc, you know, leaving the president's job and really focusing on AI. That gets some news. So it's sort of in the vein of, hey, we're big and we're going to start thinking about this. You might even throw in, to a lesser degree, Moodle, um, Martin Dugiamas no longer being CEO and focusing on research, particularly around AI. But that's what I see is talking about talking about it, which I, I don't think that's going to last long. I think AI is going to have an impact whether or not we take it seriously. It's going to hit in different ways and we're just not quite ready for it. All right. So what about outside of AI? This is going to, I thought this would be the challenging portion of the conversation. So outside of AI, what are you seeing? And it doesn't have to just be new technologies being procured. What new innovations, and it could be new features, or it could just be, it could be a similar feature, but it's getting used in this, in a meaningful way for the first time. What innovations are you seeing outside of AI? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I've seen is around technologies like Miro, uh, more of those kind of collaborative whiteboard technologies being adopted. I mean, I think I think Padlet was a kind of a fringe tool that more universities have now kind of properly brought into this kind of stable, if I can put it like that. But Miro is the one that I think is is interesting. I think I think I heard of a course recently that was kind of trying to run run the course it was kind of an uncredited short course exclusively on Miro which is an interesting approach for a kind of an asynchronous course but I've also seen things like um, uh, asynchronous crits um, being conducted on Miro which I think is really really interesting thinking about kind of art and design and architecture and things like that that not just in terms of the technology but actually just that approach of doing a crit kind of asynchronously rather than well well, you're going to help uh, have to help me with the language if if nobody else so this is kind of a common assessment method in art and design courses where you might like a critical review you might bring your work and people kind of come and make comments give feedback for critical a crit yeah a crit okay (laughs) Um, Silly me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I should have translated or should have explained. But yeah, just that, that that's just been an interesting one for me. And I've definitely seen Miro used a lot in kind of art and design contexts. And I think I think maybe I've said this before, but I, I find it interesting when uh, you find areas like that that maybe aren't, you know, they're not business and management. They're not the kind of, you know, ones that you associate with online, but they're kind of increasingly going online and figuring out different ways and, kind of landing on different technologies. So I think there's a bit of a broader acceptance of those kind of tools. There's a few interesting examples um, of that. Um, I think one of the things that I want to mention was something that I kind of came across, which I haven't seen adopted, but I think is just an interesting element for online. And it's it's an area that I've kind of thought about for a while. But I think around the time of the pandemic, and I think it still happens, is that kind of, I don't know if you come across the kind of co-working online I don't know if you've come across that at all my, my wife does it sometimes where you're kind of working you're online and other people you're in a room with other people and you kind of may take a pause and kind of engage with them but I think it's a really interesting concept and I think there's a I think there's a company called I think it's called study stream where it's co-working online and I think one of the things that we talk about around online education is maybe that sense of isolation or the sense of kind of you know being 
having to be more self-motivated. So I think that's an interesting thing that I'd, I'd really be interested to see being trialed on online programs, kind of co-working online as a potential innovation. So I've just thrown it out there if people are doing it or people are considering it. But it, it's, it's one thing that came to mind thinking about uh, innovations or you know where where might go but what about what about you guys what have what have you seen what's happening in the u.s one thing i'll say is like i the reference i have in my mind is like is there anything like piazza because when that came out it was a different type of discussion uh threaded wiki things combined and when i when it first came out uh like i saw some very meaningful adoption like this completely changed how university of michigan and this engineering course, people were working out complex problems and the instructor could jump in and give nudges, but then they were collectively working together. Their business model really proved their undoing, at least in terms of significant adoption. But at least at the time, I really think that was uh, very innovative and some meaningful adoption, but it didn't prove long lasting. I look to today boy, it's hard to find something even at that level that's being done. I see some solid, we're getting the job done, but I don't see much innovation. I'll add one that I really should have mentioned in the in the previous one. We'll see how meaningful it is. But in full disclosure, I'm advising a company on this, but they're using AI to build out sort of a skills-based, here's what skills are needed by an organization and here's the content that's associated with the skills. Anytime you get into skills-based learning, quite one of the most common problems is, well, what's the framework you're using for the competency or the skills and how do you organize things? And it tends to be hierarchical and very manual to get that set up. The idea is to use AI to automate that process and discover what the skills and how things should be organized. We'll see if they're, uh, you know, if it's meaningful, but, I, at least it's a really interesting new approach to a real problem. Unfortunately, it's primarily in uh, corporate learning that it's focused, but there is some, some work that's being done in U.S. with universities as well. But I've given my try, Morgan. Yeah, and, and I similarly don't have a lot. And, you know, it's like all of you, it's a question I get often, you know, so it was what, what, what's being done out there? And, and I've gotten it for years. And I was like, um, 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 and partly I'm just such a cynic that I'm skeptical of people saying this is this awesome thing that we're doing, because often when I dig into it, there's a lot of PR, like the people who are good at PR are not necessarily good at follow through or um, big impact or, or things like that. And I'm a bit skeptical of, of that. I also, you know, on a regular basis, look at some of the major venture uh, capital folks who invest in higher ed or, or invest in, in education generally. And I think for the, for the past few years, every time I look at what they're investing in, I'm always struck by how little of it is connected to teaching and learning. You know, um, there's a lot of K-12, there's a lot of workforce kinds of things, a lot of mental health things now but not a lot related to teaching and learning. So I think there is a bit of a dearth of things out there to invest in. Before I go on, I did want to uh, carry on of, of something that, that Neil said about the Miro and, and using it. One of the most innovative 
uses of technology I've ever seen in my life that has stuck with me for 20 years now. And it, it involved overhead projectors, which even at the time were <laughs> really out of date. But there was a biology professor at University of Wisconsin, La Crosse, who was using overhead projectors in class to have students draw what are the what are the maps of species and, and things like that. Anyway, I know what you're talking about. Don't know the name. Yes, for it. yeah, I, it, it's escaping me. But students would come down to the front of the class, and there were 600 students. They would draw what they thought the the map would look like, and then the rest of the class would discuss it, and and then and why it was wrong or why it was right, and and what it might look like, and and so it was this very interactive use of a very simple technology that was really powerful in in its learning outcome, and I think you know we're probably missing some of those kinds of things. And the Miro thing reminded me of that. So I hope we'll see uh, more of those kinds of things. On, on a really small scale, I did see a, a cool tool, a startup from the Netherlands that is using VR to get students interested in more vocational careers um, because there's a big problem students aren't interested in becoming plumbers or whatever. But as they integrate more at least even showing them what a plumber does in VR, it actually ups interest in them and ups uh, increases uptake of, of those kind of courses. But carry on, Phil. Well, I sh- that actually, well, you directed me a different direction. I should have mentioned it because I've even written about it, the AR, the ASU usage of virtual reality, and that I had looked at the way they'd redesigned their intro to biology courses. And just in that school, it is actually scaled in a meaningful way. And so I have a couple of posts about that. But the thing that was interesting is the VR, the headsets, the virtual worlds they built to navigate through as part of the course. The main purpose I saw it doing was it kept your interest. You weren't on, I'm showing my age, you weren't on Twitter. You weren't on social media. You weren't getting distracted. You weren't just skimming through to try to find the answer. You were there. And then the majority of the course had nothing to do with VR. The majority of the course was just really solid course design and lab work after the VR setup of like, I think a 15 minute session each week was all it was, but you were fully mentally there. And then that led to a really good course design and they were getting such good results, they completely switched over to the new method. And I, that's like 6,000 students each term. So it has its own scale just based on how big ASU is. That is a true innovation. It's having a meaningful impact, at least for thousands of students at a single school. What's unknown is whether you can extrapolate that innovation to other schools. They're trying to license it. And it's not just a matter of money. I'm worried that you might have a lot of schools and even getting grant funding to go do the same virtual worlds, dreamscape, I think they called it, uh, approach that ASU did. But if they don't understand how it fits within a solid pedagogy, I don't think they'll get the same benefits that ASU is getting. It's not just money. It's understanding the role of technology and how it supports the pedagogy. But there, that's probably my biggest non-AI innovation that I've seen in the past few years. Well, all of this, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, what you two were talking about, that using even old tools or not that sexy of tools, but in really solid ways that help students. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But I think it is worth asking, why are we in a position where there's so little pure ed tech innovation that's going on out there? What's the cause of that right now? Is it we already have all we need or disappointment or like if you guys had to pick something, what would you say is the biggest one or two reasons why we have so little we can think of? I I mean, I, I think there are there are things happening in the product space, but I think the challenges of translating tra- translating that in, into kind of what happens within universities and the sort of way I think about it is kind of like hitting a bullseye on a dartboard. It's really hard to 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 identify a product that's going to get a significant traction to kind of establish itself within higher education. And I I have to confess that I find some of the products out there and I I occasionally engage with with startups around edtech products. And I, I think there's a real lack of understanding of the kind of realities of higher education. And so it's those products that really get the problems and the challenges or, or on the needs that are kind of more likely to succeed. And I think there is a bit of disconnect, even though there's many of people setting up products um, and developing products out there. I think that's where the disconnect often often lies. I think on the university side, I, I think to my mind, things just run a lot slower than people in the kind of ed tech world understand. And I so so I, I kind of see maybe the next the next kind of phase is more universities having a polling tool or having a Padlet tool. And those aren't necessarily particularly new things, but I think it works at that sort of pace in terms of bringing things into the, into the stable. So, you know, that's, that's another challenge. So I think it's something about universities culture and propensity to take on new things. But I think, there's not necessarily a lack of product development, but it's that product development that really hits you between the eyes in terms of it's really fulfilling a, a need. And, and I think in order to get there, ed tech um, startups or whatever it might be need to really understand the realities of, of higher education in a way that they don't often do. I think that's my take anyway. As an American, I appreciate the violent imagery of bullseyes and hitting you between the eyes and everything else. I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I've been working on it. <laughs> I, I immediately went back to the to the dart scene in Ted Lasso, the first season or whatever. Oh, so yeah. that's where I was. But uh, I also wonder whether we really have a sense of what are the problems to be solved in ed tech. You know, because I, as Neil was talking, I was sitting here trying to think, like, what are the big pain points? And I've never seen a, a sort of clear enunciation of those. You know, maybe tutoring, you know, in a sense of that sort of one. Would you? Couldn't you say that in terms of retention rates? That's a simple. Oh yeah. yeah. We need better retention rates. Period. Yep. Yep. Well-defined, very important problem. But in that case, I think there was way too much black box magic thinking and too little understanding of what it would take to move the needle on re- retention. And I'm. I'm speaking of Civitas. Let's get that out in the open. It sucked out so much of the oxygen in the room, but it really didn't make impacts at universities in any big scale. I would add two others on why we're in the place that we're at. One is the whole, you know, end of, now that Morgan's fully into this, uh, ZERP, the end yeah. of free money, zero interest rates. And that does change the investing environment which is so many startups, their focus on survival right now. 
not trying new things, learning, being challenging. It, it's a survival mode or extinct, extinction mode for a lot of startups. But it also shifts the priority towards away from a story and potential and towards you got to be profitable and standalone right now. So I think that whole change in, over the past two to three years in the investment environment is part of it. And then the other part, at least in the U.S., is the regulatory environment. I mean, you get slapped down for trying new things. It's right now, the all of our regulations are aimed at gotcha. Let's find evildoers and punish them. And there's nothing being done that supports innovation. So I go back to the Obama administration. And I'm not, I think this had an impact. At least then we had like, pilot programs to encourage competency-based education. We'll streamline the approvals and do uh, put out things to share information and let's encourage innovation around competency-based education. We don't see anything like that right now. So I think I would say the investment environment and the regulatory environment is a big part of the problem right now. And what about universities' financial standing, Phil? Because I think cost control is probably an element here. No, you're exactly, yeah, it's not just vendors. You're exactly right. It's, yeah, every day we're getting new stories about massive budget cuts, restructuring of budgets, or in the case of Arizona, preserving the president's job while talking about budget cuts. But you're right. I I don't think it's a lack of funding for education. It's a chaos where people are hunkered down or fearful of losing their jobs, or they're not quite sure what they're permitted to do. I get so many times now, hey, we're thinking about doing this, but we have an interim provost. So we know it's not going to get approved until we get a full-time provost. So there's a lot of uh, stagnation because of that. So no, I think you're right. I think university financials is, is another major factor. Yeah, you kind of say to your finance director, hey, I've got this new fancy AI tool. What do you reckon? <laughs> Willing to invest? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> going back to it, uh, we don't know how much longer it will survive, but that was sort of the basis, uh, at least on the enrollment side, for the OPM market revenue share, finding another source of saying we're willing to invest. They've got their own problems right now. But so that's where we are. I would say uh, we are seeing a lack of innovation in a meaningful way in higher education. Some of that can be thought of as good. It's an opportunity to say, well, use existing technologies, but do it. And it's almost discipline specific. In this discipline or in this department, find a new way to solve a particular problem. I don't know that I would advocate the overhead projectors, but you know, <laughs> I think that's where the real opportunity is right now is, is the usage that's well-designed to a clear academic context, even if it's old technology. That seems to be the majority of it, but I think generative AI is going to have a big impact. It's just education hasn't got there yet. So that's the way I would uh, sum it up what I'm hearing from the conversation. Any last thoughts before we sign off? Well, I mean, if I can tie this back to the first story around inconsistent usage of a very old or traditional edtech tool, then, you know, to your point about there's still distance to travel within the existing technology, then I think, you know, that that highlights that as well. So I'd echo that. Oh, great. Hey, great conversation. And we will talk to you all in the next week. We'll have to figure out the topic that we're doing. Mm-hmm.